Here we go. I'm happy and I'm free. Just listen to the wind. Now look, is that is there any easier way to wake up on a Saturday morning than just setting your radio alarm to Rosie on the house? Good morning. Sun's not even up yet. It's gonna be a beautiful morning. And we have got a power-packed show for you today. You're not going to want to miss a, a minute of it. At 10 o'clock, we're going to be bringing in a very special guest from MAM. We're going to be talking and featuring a few of our favorite charities here at the end of the year that we support all year long. You interviewed MAM. Military Assistant Mission. Very very great organization. We'll be looking forward to having them in studio a little bit later this uh, broadcast. Nine o'clock, we're going to be talking to Habitat for Humanity and all they do for the community in housing all through the great state of Arizona. Eight o'clock, this is going to be a great hour. We've got Jay Harper will be in as lo- along with the Community Gardening Center from St. Vincent de Paul. They've got an incredible uh, community garden with aquaponics, so they're going to come in and talk about what... Uh, their little project right just south. I mean, it's it's right in the industrial district, and they've got this beautiful community garden you just walk into. Raising the fish creates the fertilizer for 42,000 pounds of vegetables. The fish grow to edible size and become fillets. <laughs> it's, it's like the, it's like the back perfect, into compost. It's, it's like the perfect system. It really is. <laughs> I had the privilege of going down there this week. I took a little video, a little walkabout video. It's on our Facebook page if you want to see it, as, long, as well as some photos of the garden. Fantastic. And, of course, through all of that time, if you have questions about your lawn or garden or a home improvement project you're working on, well, that's why we're here. And you just dial the toll-free number, one 888 767-4348. But as you all know, regular listeners, the 7 o'clock hour doesn't generally have anything to do with home ownership strictly. It has to do with whatever the Romeros are interested in that week. And Jennifer and I attended an Arizona State Historical Society Symposium Seminar. Uh, one of the uh, kind of lab exercises, field trips, was at a place called Steam Pump Ranch. It was a historic uh, homestead north of Tucson on Oracle Road, the, where the Push Ridge is. It's the Push family. And uh, during that demonstration, I was able to meet archaeologist Alan DeNoyer, who's joining us by phone from Tucson this morning. Alan, thanks a bunch for making the time, man. Thanks for having me, Rosie. All right. So, Alan, explain to our listeners what we saw at that demonstration y'all had at Steam Pump Ranch. So when you guys came out, you saw a reconstructed pit house that we had built up there that is based on Hohokam period houses about, that were built about 700 years ago in the area. Archaeologists um, had excavated a site very nearby and so we used a lot of the plans, the uh, construction details that they were able to glean from the house to build that house with. All right. And, and explain to the listeners, if you're going to build a pit house, talk me through it. Um, and, which, so, and, which, and which building codes are you complying to? That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. We actually had to get permits to do that almost. They were... 
people saw the house and they're like, do you have permits for this? And we're like, uh, well, we're not really planning on living in it. Pen- pending, pending. I, yeah, exactly. Hey, there's no electricity. There's no indoor plumbing. What do you need permitted here? Right, exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, how, how do you build a pit house? So uh, in this instance, we had to gather the material, the, the, the larger beams and logs for the framework, the internal framework. We actually gathered those off of Mount Lemon. They'd been doing some um, tree cutting up there. And in that village, when they excavated, they actually discovered that in some of the houses that had burned, they had used pine logs that they had brought down from Mount Lemon. So it was and when, it was you, and, reasonable when, and when you say that village right there at the steam pump is where was, the village was? No, the village was actually up on a terrace up above the CDO wash there. Okay. Um, they did earlier on live down in the bottoms of the of the of the floodplains, but by this point in time, folks were mostly building their villages up on the terraces above the floodplains. Okay, so um, and I'm, this village was called Honeybee Village. Honeybee. So I'm there four thousand years ago. I'm going to walk up to the top of Mount Lemon, almost naked, barefooted, mm-hmm. and I'm going to find a way to cut down a pine tree. Yep. And then I'm going to carry it back down to the village. <laughs> well, actually, it's it, it's been fun because we do a lot of stuff called experimental archaeology. And so and this would be about 700 years ago of this time period. Okay. And we, they made stone axes. And so what we figured out that they did, it's much easier to cut a tree down when it's green. So you would go up on the mountain and you would probably cut the tree down with your axe. And then you would let it lay there for a year or maybe longer to let it dry out because there's no way that anybody would want to carry a tree down that's wet. If you've ever done that, it's amazingly heavy. (laughs) All right. So we get the beams down. These pit houses, how many square feet did they constitute? How big were they? Well, you know, there's a, there's a wide range of them. Some are very small, you know, um, uh, like, maybe six to 10 feet in diameter okay. or rectangular shapes. The earlier structures are round, and then the later structures are rectangular. Interesting. And then they can be up to 20, 30 feet wide, long. Um, some structures may even have been communal houses. They were so big. So I've Where, got these dry pine logs hauled down from Mount Lemmon to this site. What's yeah. the next thing I do? So you have to dig a hole. So they built their houses out of pits in the ground. So you get a digging stick, and you go out there, and you just start digging away. Probably they waited until the rainy seasons to do this, and the water coming down gets the ground wet, which makes it much easier to dig. When it's baked and dry in the hot summer and you know during the dry periods, wow, it's hard. It's a quick way to get a lot of nice blisters. I think everything you've described so far convinces me if I were on the construction crew for this, I would want to be the superintendent. <laughs> that was my job. <laughs> okay. So you've, you've got the logs. You've dug the pit the size of the footprint of the house that you want. Yep. What next? So um, along with the logs, you're going to need smaller materials like uh, seep willow and maybe just desert willow branches. So... I guess the way to think about this is first, once you've got the house pit dug and you've dug the post holes for the main support posts 
and any of the outer posts that go around the perimeter of the house, you erect that portion of the house, you tie it together using um, rope that you've probably made out of uh, agave or yucca fibers, and then you're going to use these willows, and you're going to basically weave a basket, like an upside-down basket, over the top of this structure. And you're going to weave them together into basically the style of architecture is called waddle and daub. So you weave this framework of sticks together, creating this sort of basket. And then what we did up there was we mudded the basket over with a layer of just straight up clay rich uh, mud from the local area right there. And is there a, a fireplace flue in there? Are you doing cooking in this uh, upside-down yeah. woven basket? Yeah. So every, <laughs> pretty much every single pit house you dig has a little fire hearth in them. And they're always right in front of the little ramp that you walk down into the house. And so when we're excavating these houses, we know right where they're going to be. So with experimentation, we're pretty sure they probably had an opening in the roof right above the fire hearth to allow the smoke to go out. Um, but I've built a lot of fires in that little house up there, and it gets really smoky. Yeah. So an, another theory is, is that they probably built the larger fires outside, and then they just brought in hot coals and, and had a, uh, the little fire um, inside the house just to keep it warm. And I'll tell you, it doesn't take very much at all to heat that little house up. I bet. I bet. So that is the pit house of 700 years ago. Yeah, so that's what we call the Hohokam time period down here. Um, they were making ceramics, um, and they were growing corn, beans, and squash at that period of time. I don't think people realize the numbers of people that were in Arizona 700 years ago. Yeah. When you start amazing. analyzing the ball courts and the structures and you get in around Mogollon Rim and see the cliff dwellings that are sprinkled throughout the entire state and then yep. all of the stuff that you guys are doing down there in, in Santa Cruz and La Paz and Pima and Pinal County, I mean, there was people everywhere. Yep. You know what? If you have water, if there's water around and people can dig a canal out of a river or a creek or even dry land farming, if, if there's at least a little bit of water around, there were people. Wow. We're speaking this morning with archaeologist Alan DeNoyer, who is with Archaeology Southwest. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I want you, the listener, to put yourself in the seat of a backhoe. And you're beginning to explore a particular site in northern Tucson. And you have the vision to see something at the end of your bucket that is absolutely amazing. We're going to find out what that was right after this short break. Stay tuned as we continue our conversation with Alan DeNoyer. And welcome back this morning to Rosie on the House. Well, we're talking to archaeologist Mr. Alan DeNoyer from Archaeology Southwest down in Tucson. Romy, the thing that always just like really intrigues me about archaeology is you're literally every shovel full of dirt could potentially be exposing every shovel load is peeling back layers of hundreds of years of history. 
Yeah. It's a- absolutely that. incredible. Now, Romy won our raw egg contest with the backhoe where we weld a spoon to the front of the bucket of a backhoe. And you have to be able to take that spoon, pick up the raw egg, and deliver it to hand to awesome. the inspector. Uh, Romy, where did you ever even learn how to do that? I mean, you won the contest. <laughs> <laughs> I, that one was just easy. I Grading, that one came hard, but the the bucket was it was easy. I don't know. Listen to what Alan's backhoe operator found. Describe this scene, Alan. Yeah, so so this friend of mine, his name is Dan Arnett, and he was working down. He's the one he discovered the early agricultural fields that we find down here. And one day he was working out here off of Sunset Road, and he was scraping along, and he hit a berm where the people uh, had built up a berm with a ditch, uh, a canal field ditch running through the middle of it. And as he was scraping along the berm, he saw this shape, and he thought, boy, that looks like a footprint. So he hopped out of the tractor grabbed his blower and went down there. And with the blower and a little trowel, he scraped and he blew the sand out of this hole. And sure enough, there's beautiful little toe prints in this footprint. It was totally a footprint squished down into the mud. You could even see the squishes of the mud outside where the whole bank kind of smooshed out when the person stepped into it. And and these footprints date to when? So these footprints were approximately... 3,000 to 3,500 years old. But, you know, um, wait, just let that soak in one minute. Just let that soak in one minute. So this guy on a backhoe is uncovering footprints that are yeah. 3,000 years old. Yeah. So so Dan has a video online, and in this video they, sharp, they duct tape a Sharpie to the end of his blade, and he writes his name on a board with the, with the Sharpie using this boom of the tractor. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's yep. really good. Yep. All right. So he doesn't just find one footprint. Right. And this is on the north side of Tucson. It's kind of, yeah, the northwest side of Tucson, right along the Santa Cruz River in the floodplain. And they were getting ready to build a new bridge over the Santa Cruz River there. There had been one many years ago, got washed out in the flood. So they were building a new bridge. So before that work happens, we have to go in and do the archaeology that might be impacted by that new road. And so that's what he was doing when he discovered that first footprint. And then that led to, you know, he's like, well, there's one. What about more? So he got down and he started blowing and scraping and blowing and scraping. And there were footprints everywhere. And these are these are families. These are small footprints. These are adult footprints. Yeah, and they're the agricultural so, fields of, of this civilization. Yeah. So it was so well preserved. So there was a there was we could dig the fields three dimensionally. So you could excavate the berms around the fields and the ditches in the fields and even the planting pits in the fields where they planted the corn. So at this period of time, all they had was corn and squash. They didn't have beans yet, but he could, we could expose the whole field, and then you could see the footprints of the farmers walking through the fields to go to let water into each field cell. The planting pits didn't look like the corn was growing yet. It must have been early in the spring, and there was a flood. This came down the CDO wash. This flood came down, and it's right where it runs into the Santa Cruz. This flood dropped a layer of silty sand that covered all these tracks. So this sand did not compact very hard, so we could literally blow it out of the footprints with a blower. 
So it was really easy to do. Folks, as you're driving to or from Tucson on Interstate 10, you're literally driving over these fields at yep. Ina, Twin Peaks, that whole area right in there. Yeah, all the way up below A Mountain. These, there's just sections of fields all along the Santa Cruz there. Um, and we're talking in a lot of cases, there's fields stacked up on top of fields, seven, eight layers thick that we can see. And there's probably a whole lot more than that. Seven or eight layers. That's yep. incredible. Wow. Yeah. So is any of this available for the public to see in its current state? No. Um, the, right now, there is nothing that is really uh, visible at all. Um, there is some stuff down below a mountain. They have reconstructed one of the, the Presidio Gardens, and they have a bunch of the historic gardens there that the Spanish built redone. That's pretty neat to see. Um, but as far as the prehistoric stuff, there's really not much to see right along the Santa Cruz. Well, that Santa Cruz River uh, starts down around Canela, and yeah. it flows south into Mexico. Horseshoes yep. bends back up through Nogales, through Tubac, right into the south side of the southeast, southwest corner of Tucson, runs right along a mountain and eventually drains into the Gila River. So, yep. I mean, and it it was... I-10 of the entire Spanish conquistadors. It was Santa Cruz and San Pedro rivers that they use as their highways into Arizona. Yep, yep. It was, it was amazing. And, and literally, it wasn't until the 1800s the Santa Cruz had flowing water through these certain stretches near the mountains, and it had it year-round. Mm-hmm. They had lakes in the Santa Cruz down here. Historically, people would ride little paddle boats down around in the Santa Cruz. <laughs> Here we are with archaeologist Alan DeNoyer talking about a particular field that was discovered in northern Tucson, but we're going to come back and talk about a whole lot of other discoveries in the state of Arizona when we're back after this. Talking housing at Rosie on the House this morning. Ancient housing, Hohokam housing, pit housing, and more with archaeologist Alan DeNoyer joining us by phone from Tucson. Alan, we've been talking a little bit about the discovery y'all made in, in, in the northern side of Tucson, but you were involved in a particularly cool discovery right in downtown Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were kind of on uh, between Madison and Jefferson Streets along in that stretch of roads down there, right downtown, like right around 12th Avenue. And uh, we were excavating. They were putting a new water pipeline in, and we were excavating the middle of the street out. They had to dig a huge phase. And there's a huge site in there called – it's been named the La Via site. And we were – Working on that, and when we, we, we were talking about the backhoe, so we come in first with the backhoe, and we scrape down until we can see the outlines of the features. And then the archaeologist running the project gives every, each crew member a house to dig. And so the house that I got, when I started excavating it, it had burned. It was clear that it had burned down, and there was charcoal and ash and now, stuff everywhere. Now, Alan, I just got to ask, how, how deep are we to the to the tops of these homes? Are we 
six inches under the street? Are we a foot under the feet? A under foot. The On this okay. one, probably a foot under the street. Okay. And All right. The street has been paved, cut down probably a little bit from the original ground surface. So probably about two and a half to three feet below modern ground surface. But we're already dug down from their ground surface because they these were pit houses, so they dug a pit, a hole. Okay. And when we dig with the backhoe, we dig down deep enough that we kind of go through their living surface so we can just see the features that they dug down into the ground. And so, so that's why we can we can see each individual house, and it makes it so much easier. So the home then, you're excavating has burned. Yes. So it burned down, and so I'm excavating across this floor, and there's just little bits of burnt corn and beans across the floor. And then I come to an area where there's a whole big mass of sherds where there were some crushed pots. And as I'm exposing down to these sherds, there's just gobs of burnt corn and gobs of burnt beans. And then I come to this jar that had been intact, and when the house burned down and the roof collapsed, it smashed it. But the jar had been filled with squash. It was like they took a squash and they smashed it up and they filled this jar with it. The house burned so hot that it charred all of these items, the corn and the beans and the squash. There were some kinopodium seeds. There were some prickly pear pads. It charcoaled it out, and when the roof came down on top of all of it, it smothered it so it didn't ash out. So when we come in and dig it, it's preserved and we can see it. It was amazing. Uh, that, I mean, just discovering that kind of stuff would be mind-bending. And then, then what do you do with it? <laughs> well, yeah, it, you know, there's problems with you. you we have um, folks that do the analysis on the vegetable materials, the plant materials, and we look for pollen. We do all these things. The carbonized stuff, you know, you can only do so much with it because it's burned. So. You can't see the original colors, you, so it's, sometimes it's hard to ID it to an exact species. You can do pretty good, uh, but it's it's a little bit harder. It shrinks a little bit when it burns, but it's better. It's the best we got, and it works really good. Do you take these to the museum? Do you uh, <laughs> yeah, put them on eBay? Have, I mean, where? <laughs> they eventually end up in a museum somewhere or a storage facility. All these materials get stored. Um, we, you know, nothing gets kept by anybody. Um, yeah, uh, all that stuff ends up somewhere that to so that it can be used for future research. And uh, I, I work with a lot of other people that go back into collections from excavated sites and relook at things, sites that were excavated 60, 70 years ago. And you can learn all kinds of new things from, from those sites. Just, you know, we are always learning. And so every time we dig a site, we learn more. So we think right now we understand what's going on, but in 15 years, they're going to look back at us and say, those knuckleheads, they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> well, Alan, we're, we're going to have to have you back on because you were originally scheduled to be in studio, and you were going to bring two atlatls. Yeah. <laughs> and you were going to teach me how to throw it. Describe what an atlatl is. So an atlatl is, for all intents and purposes, an atlatl is a stick that you hold in your hand and it has a little hook at one end. And what it does, it just makes your arm longer. It's a lever. And so prehistorically, they used atlatls to throw what we call darts with. And they're just very large arrows. They look like a giant arrow shaft. And then the projectile points that they made for these atlatl darts 
were larger than the later ones that were made for bow and arrows. And so atolls were used here in the southwest up until about 1500 years ago and then they were replaced by the bow and arrow. I I I've just got to learn how to throw that. Only oh, because yeah. you like to say it so much. Uh, I, how, how can you <laughs> not? Alan, he walks around the office going, Adelaide? Adelaide? Adelaide. Where's my Adelaide? <laughs> I couldn't wait to have you on so he could get it out of his system. <laughs> the precursor to the bow and arrow. Yes. I mean, I've tried using the David and Goliath revolving slingshot thing. Yeah. I only get hurt. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. I don't know what that is, but yikes. Yeah. Like a I, sling? Oh, just a sling. Yeah, those are, yeah, they're fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's a sling with two, and you have to let go of one side just in yep. time. And, it like, I've, like, knocked myself out three times trying to learn how to use it. <laughs> so I got I to get this addle-addle and, and give it a try. I actually saw videos on y'all's website where you were teaching, it looked like, kids to, to, to use them. Yeah, yeah. Actually, in fact, I just got back from two days ago. I was over in New Mexico at a school with, I, in the course of an afternoon, we taught 120 kids how to use the atlatl and darts. How cool! <laughs> how cool is that? Yeah. Now, listen, talking about cool, uh, I, I always try and promote the Pueblo Grande Museum. It's right here in Phoenix, uh-huh. folks, 44th Street in Washington. If you haven't been there, it is a a beautiful demonstration of the early settlers, the canals that were dug by hand, eight feet deep, eight to 12 feet wide, irrigating the fields. But you have a particularly cool event you're going to this afternoon. Yeah, there's going to be a, up at uh, the, the uh, the cliff dwellings up at Tonto National Monument, they're having, a, I think, a, a candelabra event in the evening there and in the afternoon they'll be i'll be there and a bunch of different park service folks there'll be demonstrations um and it's just it's a celebration of their anniversary of becoming a national monument another another great place to go visit if y'all haven't been there it's just above lake roosevelt you get into globe miami and you head down to lake roosevelt or you come up fish creek and apache trail or you come down through pumpkin center uh on the pace and beeline highway three different ways to get there it's tonto national Mon- it's this afternoon it's open to the public right yes it is okay. yep and what time are y'all going to get that event going this afternoon I think it starts around 1 to one thirty. It'll be there, and I'll be there for about for two or three hours through the middle of the afternoon. And um, I'm probably going to do some flint napping demonstrations, but I'll bring an atlatl and have a dart there and, uh, uh, um, and just talk to people about it. And did you say flint napping? So flint napping is how you make arrowheads and atlatl dart points out of rock using uh, deer antlers and other rocks. Um, it's a passion of mine. <laughs> and you'll be giving a demonstration of that this afternoon. Yep. Yes, I will. That's uh-huh. awesome. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about, again, it just infatuates me, the population of people that were here. And one of the indications we have of how many communities were in the area were these ball courts. Yes. Yeah, so... You have, like like up in Phoenix, where you have the very large canal systems, um, people 
there uh, along a canal you would have many communities that lived along that canal and communities of any great size had these ball courts which we call them ball courts they've actually found balls that were believed to be um used in some sort of game that was played in them um but also they're thought of as they're a they're a they're a community uh place to get together and and have you know uh maybe a lot of trading things like that happened around them they were a really they were a big um uh thing that brought communities together and 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 communities maybe along one canal segment and maybe throughout a whole region people would come together at a certain village at a certain period of time for you know activities um ball games a lot of that a lot of that kind of stuff we you know there's the Mesoamerican ball games that they played down there and this it's thought that this is some sort of a of a version of that that they were playing and when i say ball courts uh you know they were community centers they were the gathering areas i i'm not talking three or four or five of them right i mean from buckeye along the salt down the gila yep through the santa cruz the san pedro i mean if you would yeah. just throw a number out there, how many ball courts are in that vicinity? I, I think there's something like that are known. There's there's probably uh, at least a couple of hundred ball courts <laughs> that are known, and there probably were a lot more that we just we they've either gotten um, destroyed, disturbed, or we just haven't been noticed yet. Well, I love hiking throughout Arizona, and about 10 years ago, I was hiking with an archaeologist around Oracle. And, yeah. I mean, just walking along the ground, he'd say, well, here's here's a, a here's an ancient dwelling site right here. Look at the walls yep. here and the cliff. And to the untrained eye, it's just rock outcroppings that you can't recognize. I mean, it was the most fascinating hike <laughs> I've ever had. We're gonna, You're going to have to try and arrange where we put together some Rosie on the House listeners and get a couple archaeologists, and we just walk the desert, and y'all can start picking things out for us. Oh, that would be great. That would be right. really fun. Yeah. You know, that's the problem with archaeologists, though. If you go out with archaeologists, we never see animals. We're we're looking at the ground. I don't know how many branches I've walked into and about poked my eyeballs out. Well, Alan, again, I can't thank you enough. Tell us in a minute, what is Archaeology Southwest? Archaeology Southwest is a nonprofit uh, organization down here in Tucson, and we put out a magazine uh, two to three times a year on different parts of the Southwest about different archaeological things. Our most latest issue is about Phoenix Underground, and it's a big, thick issue. It's like a book. It's a wonderful. Um, and we do preservation. We help protect archaeological sites, preserve them, and uh, do as much as we can to keep uh, excavations to a minimum so we can preserve these things. Uh, there was no written languages back in the day, and so that's the only thing that's left of the Native Americans that were living in this part of the world, except for their ancestors, that is. <laughs> well, Alan, you have a great trip up to Tonto National Monument. Have a great uh, great time with the visitors that come in and show them how to make their arrowheads and throw the addle-addles and uh, do the luminarial walk there at Tonto National Monument. Folks, you can find it at tontonationalmonument.com. Get there this afternoon. You'll have a fabulous trip through Arizona. Alan DeNoyer, archaeologist, thanks a million. We did Thank post you, that event in the event section at rosieonthehouse.com so you can get a map and 
uh, PDF and all the all the details you need to oh, find perfect. out. But Great. before we let Alan go, okay, spell Adelatl for me once. A T L A T L A T L A T L Adelatl. Now Adelatl. We put yeah. a trivia question in our newsletter that it was apparently too hard for our listeners uh, to win some to, to win tickets. The, which ones were these? These were Coyotes tickets. Okay. For uh, next week. So, if you can spell Adelatl correctly, text it to 411923. <laughs> All correct spellings will pick a random drawing if you want to attend the Coyotes game. And this is for next Saturday, December 23rd. Starts at 6 o'clock, and they play the Colorado, Colorado Avalanche. What was the question you had in the newsletter that was too hard? Name three of Rosie and Jennifer's six kids. Oh, the the closest one was Romy. Julia and Jen Gura. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Alan DeNoyer, archaeologist. We're going to have you back on. Thanks a million for making time this morning. Okay. Yep. All right. All right, folks. We'll be right back. There's a little air guitar music for your Saturday morning. That'll get you going right there. Then you can say Adel, Adel, Adel. Adel, Adel, I think there, we got 50 different uh, spellings of Adel, Adel. <laughs> couple of them are right. Well, and uh, you know, a lot of those, I didn't even think about it while we were doing it. That was kind of a, a spur of the moment thing, was the autocorrect. I'm, I'll be curious to see how many of these entries are the same phone, like trying to make it spell <laughs> Adel, Adel, Adel right. Because it keeps trying to correct you. That's true. It's, it's an Aztec word. So, you, so program your spell check to the Aztec language, and you'll be just fine. Speaking of touring Arizona, we're talking earlier this hour about things that are going on around the state uh, things to go see as we were talking with archaeologist Alan DeNoyer. Uh, he's going to be up at Tonto National Monument later this afternoon. You know, Arizona Game and Fish is asking for citizen scientists to volunteer for something. If, if you want to get involved in a project with your kids or your grandkids, this is the perfect cool project. And what they're trying to do is establish a baseline population for the American kestrel. Now, the kestrel is a falcon. It's a small falcon whose population is declining nationally. We have nesting sites here in Arizona. Arizona Game and Fish is looking for citizen scientists. They will give you the nesting sites of these birds and ask you to check on the status of the nest so we can try and establish information. This is even cooler than banding the blacktail ferrets up outside of uh, Williams. This is a cool project. This is a great project. It gets you out in Arizona, gets you outside, gets you exposed to wildlife. And if you're willing to volunteer for this project, just go to Raptors at AZGFD. That's Arizona Game and Fish Department. Raptors at AZGFD.gov. And you can get the information you need about enlisting yourself and enlisting your kid, enlisting your nephew, your niece, your grandchild, and get them out there and let them see one of these magnificent creatures at work. They're and what's it called again? A kestrel. kestrel. It's, it's, it's a miniature Sounds falcon. Sounds like motor oil. Kestrel. 
this it's cooler than that. And a kestrel. These they're a beautiful little bird. These are like spell that d- for me. <laughs> K E S T R E L. K E S T R E L. I'm gonna have a spelling bee here at Rosie on the house because we've got 20 state park tickets we got to get rid of here. We do, we do. Um, uh, Sue Black, executive director at Arizona State Parks, we've had her on several times before, has given us another 20 day use passes for the state parks. How how do y'all want to give these away, Jennifer? They're your tickets. How do you want to give them away? Uh, text Kestrel. <laughs> text Kestrel to four one one. Nine two three. The the first twenty. Yeah, I'll send them two passes. I'll get them out this weekend, so I'll have them for stocking stuffers. Text Kestrel. Does it have to be spelled correctly? No, I'll be easy on this one. It's too early to spell well. (laughs) Spell well, whatever. All right. Now, what's neat about the state parks? Yes, is our home maintenance calendar we put together for twenty eighteen, and we did that photo contest, and we were trying to decide: do we keep it just Arizona? wildlife and landscape uh, yes. year over year, do we have a different theme? Well, we thought it'd be fun to kind of theme it so over the years as this goes on, Good. you would have different points of interest, to, and, and it would keep it ch- ever-changing and evolving. Well, next year, 2018, we're going to keep it Arizona landscape and okay. wildlife, but it has to be from inside a state park. Well, you got plenty to choose from. You do. You have over 35. Yeah. So, And now you got a free pass. No, one one more reason to get you outside and enjoy this great state of Arizona, in particular over these next six months. That's what we do with our Arizona Staycation, brought to you by Sanderson Ford. You go to rosieonthehouse.com and register. You can register once a month. We pick a winner once a month, and you get to pick in the state where you want to go, and we're actually going to calendar them for you in the following year. So you'll know ahead of time which destination you're putting in. But you can't win if you don't put in. So get put in at rosieonthehouse.com. It's the only place in the world you can win an Arizona staycation that allows you to tour the state in a brand-new Ford vehicle from Sanderson Ford, free of charge. It doesn't cost you a dime except for the souvenirs you buy. We pay for the lodging. We pay for the food. We pay for the gas. That's only at rosieonthehouse.com, courtesy of Sanderson Ford, the Arizona Staycation.